Good morning. Um, I suppose I am the first Adam, and the second Adam you will receive is better. <laughs> but way to pick a new pastor, though. Solid name. Um, I'm, I, I really love coming to this church. Uh, I, I've come here enough time. I think I've come here four times, maybe five, um, over the last uh, 10 or 12 years uh, since Nick has been your senior pastor. And it's been really cool to watch, um, to watch over time from a distance what God has done in this place and among you. Um, the conference that I got to be a part of yesterday was awesome. So wave at me real quick if you were a part of executing that. If you were a volunteer, can you applaud these people? They worked really, 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 really hard. Yeah. Yeah, that was, um, it was just really well done. And uh, it was a really beautiful time of prayer and ministry. And, and uh, people got, uh, got to experience the healing presence of, of Jesus, which is largely what we're going to talk about here. Um, why, are, why are we doing this? Well, I'd imagine there are a few motivations to talking about healing. Um, when, when you talk about healing, you're really putting your faith on the line. Because it's one thing to say, like, I believe in Jesus for, like, an eternal benefit out there that's largely untestable and unverifiable. But it's a different matter entirely to say, I, I'm trusting God that some of that out there could come rushing backwards into the right now. And some of what is up there could come rushing downwards into this moment right here. And so I'm going to extend my faith to, to see healing. That is harder. Because that takes a faith that's sort of out here and abstract and brings it right here and makes it rather concrete. And so today, if you're hearing this and maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you've never, you've never been encouraged or challenged with the fact that like, there is in fact a real God who really does love you, who really did raise Jesus from the dead, who really is present in his church by the really real Holy Spirit, and who really does like miracles when we ask. Not every time, but he definitely doesn't do them when we don't. And so he encourages us, ask. I'm, I'm hopeful that one of the responses that will happen as a result of this is that you'll just begin asking God for bigger things. I always like to say, I, if I'm asking God for something huge, I want to ask him with such faith and so frequently that if I don't receive it, it's because I know he said no, not because I didn't ask. Amen? All right. So <clears throat> having said that, uh, let's jump into the text of Scripture. I'm going to read We'll pray. I'm going to read two spots, and uh, it, will, it will become clear later why I've chosen to read these two spots. <clears throat> uh, the first is the entirety of Psalm 130. It's not going to be on the screen because I was not prepared for that. So you're going to have to open your Bible or scroll with me through your Bible. Close your Sports Center app and Twitter and all that other stuff. Here we go, Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, or some translations say, keep a record of wrongs. If you, O Lord, did that, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. 
He'll redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The second place we're going to read from is Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In my church, after we read the Bible, I say, this is the word of the Lord, and then they say, thanks be to God. So help me feel at home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, please come and help us. Um, Your word is true. It is without error. It is entirely authoritative, and I know that this is a church that takes your word seriously and seeks to be under the authority of the word of God. So Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through the word that you inspired certain men to write. Talk to us, God. Lord, there are some in here who are in like great physical pain, like right now. And some who had to overcome the bog of depression just to get here this morning. And lots of stuff in between. Pain and hurt are a ubiquitous part of our experience. So God, would you show us what it means to trust you and to believe the gospel in such a way that we don't have to just live in our suffering, but we can learn what it might mean to overcome. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanna talk to you this morning about how the gospel is a relational healing. How the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the story of God, is, amongst other things, a relational healing. It is not only a relational healing, so don't hear what I'm not saying, but it is, among many things, a relational healing. Now, this is extremely important because, as far as I know, most of you are in relationships. And as far as I know, except for your dog or your gerbil or your ferret or whatever weird pet you might have, most of your relationships are in, like, with other humans, right? Have you met other humans? They're the worst, right? Humans can be really awesome, but relating to them can also be really, really hard because of the things that are wrong with you and the things that are wrong with them. And that is most acutely seen in our closest relationships, isn't it? Let me tell you about some of the people that I most closely relate to. You can throw that picture up in my family. Aren't they pretty? My wife on the left, uh, we met in high school. I was 15, she was 16. I shoved my four-year degree into two years so that I could marry her. And I married her a week after graduation, and we started a human collection. And it's a very expensive collection, so just <laughs> before you start one, just know. So, Alana on the left is gonna turn 18 this week. That's crazy. And it went very quickly. She is beautiful, and she plays the violin, and she has a deep heart for the hurting. Um, Her sister, Nora, next, is probably one of the most gifted artists I've ever encountered in my life. Um, She shares many of the same passions of of her sister. She cares for the marginalized, and sometimes that has gotten them both in trouble. 
My son Cole is 13 and he loves baseball more than any other person but Jesus. And sometimes I wonder if he loves baseball more than Jesus because he knows more baseball than I know about anything. Um, and he quotes like Rain Man stats about the Boston Red Sox to me. And if you don't like the Red Sox, I, I don't care. Um, but he's, he's really into the Red Sox. So, um, so it is super fun to uh, raise him. I, that's totally different than me. Like I was a show choir nerd. I did martial arts. I knew nothing about baseball. So it's fun as a dad to raise someone totally not like you, but be really interested in what they're doing. Um, and then Wyatt is a blast. He's hilarious. He's funny. He has more energy than anyone. Uh, his initials spell the word wham, which is the sound he most often makes. Um, uh, they're a blast. I love these people. Um, but I've hurt all of them really bad, like really badly. And so therefore today, when we talk about the gospel is a relational healing. The, the thing I'm talking to you about is not an abstract idea that I've just sort of exegeted from the text and I'm serving up to you. Um, nor is it something that I'm telling you about because I'm really good at. Some of you might have come to one of my sessions yesterday and I sort of laid this out, but I'll say it again for most of you who weren't there. I am not a therapist and would never qualify to be one. I'm an okay pastor. I mostly employ people who are really good at counseling, but like if you need counseling, I'm really like, if there's no one else available, I'll do it for you and we'll just both trust Jesus that it will go okay. Because this part of ministry right here, what I'm doing right now, this is about as good as it gets for me. So, so I'm not talking to you as someone who's like a relationship expert. If anything, I'm a relationship failure. My default mode, apart from the work of grace, is that I'm not good at relating to people at all, and I'm especially not good at relating to these people at all. Over the course of our lives together, I have found and been made to find ways that my default settings have hurt my wife, have hurt my kids, how my own pain, and my own trauma from my own past, and my own anger issues, and all the kind of unredeemed stuff that I entered into relationship with these lovely people with hurt them. But I can tell you that the gospel can heal that stuff. That I can tell you about. I can tell you how the grace and mercy of Jesus actually can, can like come into your life so that the people you hurt can also be healed. And if you've been hurt by people, you can also be healed. Because the gospel is in fact a relational healing. So let me show you what I mean. With whom is the gospel a relational healing? Well, the first one answer is, is obvious. It's the one we uh, evangelicals talk the most about. It's with God. What did Psalm 130 say? He lost his place in his Bible. Hold, please. Well, it begins with, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Right? This has sometimes uh, been called the De Profundis. The, if you grew up Roman Catholic, you would know this because this is a common, uh, <clears throat> a common psalm for those who are in mourning. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. This is the cry of someone who is in the pain of sin, both perhaps the sin that they've committed or sins that have been committed against them, uh, systemic pain, injustice, all, all the yucky stuff that our sin unleashes into the world. This is the psalm, the cry, the poem, the song sang in a minor key by someone who is hurting, right? 
And so he's saying, look, out of the depths, I'm crying to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Lord, if you should keep a record of wrongs, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? It's a very important question, but a weird place to ask it, right? Because typically when I'm like most connected with why like things are bad at me, like when I feel like a victim, that's not when I think about my own sin. Typically, it's when I think about someone else's sin. But the psalmist here is like helping us see that the pain of the world is not disconnected from my own sin. Did you hear me? The pain in the world, the, the pain that you've experienced from others is not disconnected from the pain that you have caused others to experience. So it is never the case that you're just a victim. Now, I minister to mostly young people, nestled between Harvard and MIT, and many of them feel like victims, which is hilarious, because I'm like, you have a Harvard degree, just like a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory golden ticket to life. Who hurt you? What are you upset about? <laughs> but right now, we've optimized popular society to help us identify with that part of our lives that is victimized, because all of us are victims in some level. We've all been victimized by other people's pain and sin and all that stuff. So to most connect with that and, and live out of that place is a reason that we need to be treated differently than others. And the psalmist confronts that right there in the face. Your pain is not your badge and not your main source of identity. But it is real. He says, if you could keep a record of sins, O Lord, who would stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, that you may be revered, that you may be honored. This psalm is about the God who would come to redeem his people. Now, obviously, when the psalm was written, the gospel of the Lord Jesus had not yet been fully brought to fruition. And so now when we read this psalm, we read it with a whole layer of meaning that the guy who wrote it didn't even have. Because when we cry out to God in our own sin, or when we cry out to God because of the sin of other people, we know that we're talking to a God who has first done all of the things necessary to forgive us of our own sin. That's huge. The gospel is first and foremost a relational healing between you and God because your sins separate you relationally from him. That's not news, but it's not something that most people talk about. You hear about it in this church because you have a very faithful pastor and set of elders. But when we read church growth books, that's not what you're supposed to talk about. <laughs> but not everything that looks like church growth is fruit. The gospel is a relational healing with God. Secondly, it's a relational healing with others. Here's the math on that. If Christ has lived and died and rose to forgive me of my sin, I can't long hold yours against you. Which is why we were taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive me of my sins even as I forgive those who've sinned against me. That's when Jesus says some scary stuff, like with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. If you don't forgive folks for sinning against you, you're, you're, you're refusing the forgiveness that the Father has for you. Yikes. Like, that, that's unsettling. But the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is good news that not just 
I can be made right sort of spiritually with God, but that I can be in such a new and renewed relationship with him that even when I'm in the worst of my pain, I can come and talk to him. Lord, out of the depths, I cry to you, O God. Lord, hear my prayer. If you kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness. Therefore, you are in fact feared. My heart loves you. My heart reveres you. And by the end of the psalm, he's saying, okay, all right, Israel, all right, church, all right, people of God, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord, for I will yet praise him. Which takes us to the third one. The gospel is a relational healing with yourself. With yourself. Jesus comes and tells you who you are. Now, this is really important because right now we are like beset with this false religion that I'm currently calling, this is my best label for it, it's, uh, it's Gnostic Identitarianism, right? It's not a very sexy name, but let me, let me unpack it. Gnostic, uh, our, our whole society tells you that your body is really just sort of ancillary to your identity. You can kind of do with it what you like. Um, you know, if you need to modify it to express however you feel on the inside, that's fine because the body doesn't really matter. What really matters is this non-physical, deep inside you identity, whatever that means, that your job from the age of little to the age of about 18 is to discover and then express to the rest of us. And if anybody says you shouldn't be doing that, they're literally canceling you, which is a phrase that drives me nuts. It's a strange spiritual obsession with identity. Now, the problem with that is You're terrible at discovering who you are because no one's lied to you more than you. No one's deceived you more than you. No one's told you, like made promises more to you and then broke them. Okay, I promise, like this is the year I'm gonna get it together. I'm gonna like drop those 10 LBs and by January the 5th, you're like, but ice cream though, right? The gospel is a relational healing with God and with others and with yourself because Jesus tells you who you really are. First, that you're, profoundly loved. You're an image bearer, man. You are, you are a handcrafted, beautiful creation of God, but you are severely broken and ruined by sin, and that is a huge problem. It's such a big problem that it gets in the way of your God imaging thing, and if we don't deal with the problem, you will forever not be in relationship with him, but God loves you so much that he's done everything necessary to deal with your sin and to reinvigorate this image of God in you so that if you trust him, you can live out of that. Wow. And then the Holy Spirit comes and he puts us in community of relationships so that we can begin experiencing this relational healing. The gospel is a relational healing with God and with others and within ourselves. Now that's great, but that doesn't really tell you what to do, does it? So how is the gospel a relational healing? What what is it that we must begin to do? What practices must we engage in in order to experience the relational healing of the gospel? At a meta level, this is all just repentance and faith, everything you see up there. But there are parts to repentance and parts to faith that I think if we don't articulate them, you won't know about them, and then you might not successfully experience the relational healing that is part of the gospel. So the first thing that we have to realize is that the gospel tells us who we are. Jesus is coming to tell us who we are, which means we gotta start with some self-awareness. We gotta start with some self-awareness. So here's what that meant for me. A few years ago, I came to my third of three like crisis points. I've been told that men don't change until we hit a crisis point, that we ignore what's important until it's also urgent. And that's true. 
Like, I kind of like low-grade knew that like my relationships with my wife and my children and my staff and my church weren't like firing on all cylinders, but you know, I, I was working on it, I guess. But those things were brought to a crisis point such that I was faced with a decision. If I don't deal with this right now, I could maybe ruin my marriage, have no good relationship with my kids, and probably disqualify myself from pastoring people if this goes on. Now, it wasn't sin. It wasn't anything like that. The details of what my issue are, were or are not really important, but the fact that I had to go into a moment of deep, deep self-awareness. I had to get help from a relational leadership coach. I had to get help from a great therapist who I'm still getting great help from. I had to engage my pastor. I had to pull away from my work for a little bit. I had to do some work to figure out, yo, there is something wrong with my relationships. They're not working the way that God said that they should work. I need to really figure out what in the heck is happening inside me that's causing this to happen. Causing this to happen. Now, hopefully you don't have to go to that length, but at some point, you do have to stop blaming everyone else for the problems that you're experiencing in relationships. Because if you have problems in all of your relationships, you are the common denominator, my friend. It might be you. It might be you. And of course it is to you. It's everybody. Because we're all humans, and we're awesome, but we're also the worst. And so the parts that are broken in you rub up against the parts that are broken in somebody else, and then we get more broken. It's not great. So we have to understand, okay, what is it that the gospel in me is working on right now? What, what is that? I need to become self-aware of those things, and then I have to engage in repentance. Now, here's what repentance isn't. Lord, I'm really sorry. And then I go to the people that I've hurt, and I go, okay, I repent to you. Now, you have to forgive me and act like nothing happened. Anyone ever done this? And you're like, well, what? I repent. I said I was sorry. Jesus forgives me. Don't you want to be like Jesus? Anybody ever said that? Anybody ever been on the receiving end of that? Do not raise your hand. That uh, would make the drive home with your special people awkward. Yeah, yeah. I, I would both say that and I would have that said to me because I treated the words of repentance. Listen, I take responsibility for that. I'm really sorry. Uh, would you please forgive me? Now, that's good. You should say that, but repentance has to be combined with the acts of restoration. Like, put most simply, like if I was embezzling money from this, if you employed me, okay, which you're not because you got the second Adam, which I'm not bitter about, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> if, if you employed me and you found out over 10 years I had embezzled millions of dollars, and I stood up here and I was like, guys, listen, uh, my bad. I'm truly sorry. Y'all would be like, great. Where are our millions of dollars? I would, I, in order to make that right, there would have to be something the Bible calls atonement. Something, something has to happen in order to restore what was in fact broken, right? Either you're paying for it, I'm paying for it, or we're paying for it, but somebody's got to pay for it in order for things to be made right. That's part of the acts of repentance. And some of you perhaps are in relationships where the pain and the hurt and the dysfunction has gone on so long that the acts of repentance may take a while. Forgiveness might come quickly, but trust could take a second. Trust could take months or years, and that's okay, because that's what some of the acts of repentance are, because when you repent, part of the way the gospel helps us heal is we become aware of what our problems is, and then we go, okay, Lord, I'm, I don't want to have anything to do with that. We turn away from those thoughts, from those behaviors, from those patterns of acting and living, and then we, in faith, we trust God that he can heal us, and then we act as if that is true. We begin to do the things that one who is following Jesus begins to do. 
That has to happen. And in so doing, fourth, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Praise God that the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. That, that's crazy. That's crazy. I'm wrapping up my PhD in which I have studied that idea for five years. That Jesus, the same Spirit that empowered and raised Jesus, is in us. And I got to tell you, after five years, it's even crazier to me. Like, it's crazy the things the Bible says about who lives in you and us as the church. It's nuts. And that, that Jesus' relationship with the Holy Spirit is the archetype for our relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's, that's even crazier, which is why he could say crazy things like, you know, the works you've seen me do, you'll do stuff too, maybe even better. Or why Paul could write, you know, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be open and enlightened so that you could see that the spirit that dwells in you, that same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that he's at work in you. I'm, I'm a living example. Everything that comes off my life that feels like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and or self-control, none of that is in me naturally. None of that is in me naturally. I am not good at that. You know, you meet people, they're just nice people, right? And they're not Christians, but they're just nice people. You're welcome to nod back or amen at any point. Yes, you've met these people? Yes? Okay. I am not those people. I'm not those people. And so for years, I've watched in punctuated moments the Holy Spirit help me, change me. Not, dude, not done. I hope I'm not done. But part of the way the gospel works in us as relational healing is this process of self-awareness, repentance, faith, and the Holy Spirit. Now that's all very individualistic, and you're like, okay, that sounds safe. I can do that alone. I don't have to tell too many people, right, that I'm a hot mess, right? I can still put on my church clothes, you know, be like, you know, give that answer that we all give. How are you, brother? Fine, right? Which, I mean, all of you say, which makes all of you liars in church, which is even worse. My new answer to this question, how are you? And I usually say, some things are going great, which is true, right? But I can't tell you about all the stuff that's not because we're passing in the hall, and that would be weird. <laughs> that's why we gotta have the fifth one. You need the church. You need the church. And pandemic kind of ruined that for us, right? Pandemic sent us all home for a while, and we all tried to have virtual church, and that was awful, wasn't it? Amen. Yeah. Just, there's no experience like preaching into a camera and then sitting on the couch and watching yourself preach to yourself with your people. I went to someone else's church over the pandemic because I just couldn't take it anymore. I didn't want me to preach to me next to my children. Wasn't that a good point? That was awful. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. But when we got back together, oh man, how how much I realized, oh, this is an embodied thing, and like, I, we are not creatures with bodies. We, we are, in some very important sense, our bodies. And the resurrected future that we're gonna turn to in just a moment is a physical one. It's not just a spiritual one. You don't go to heaven forever when you die. That's not the way it goes. Heaven comes to earth forever, and you get resurrected. So we need that resurrection community right now. We need that gospel community right now. I need the people older than me, younger than me, wider than me, blacker than me, browner than me, richer than me, poorer than me, more liberal than me, more uh, conservative. I need all those people. And those people 
are people. And as we have established in the sermon, people can kind of be the worst. And so when you say yes to church, you're saying yes to someone hurting you because there are hurt people in here. And then you have an option. You can leave and go, oh, I have, have, I have church hurt. And if you do that, you take it all with you and start the whole cycle over again. But if you press through it, and you're like, yeah, of course I have church hurt. I'm in a church. <laughs> My church, man, they've got problems. Yeah, I know, they do. The perfect church doesn't exist, but if it did, as soon as you walked into it, it would no longer exist. <laughs> right? I'm sorry, is that too... This is part of the reason I wore black today. I have some bad news before the good news. Is that too, too real for... We need the church. We need the people who can correct us and rebuke us and train us in righteousness. I need the church. I mean, I'm a senior pastor of a large church. I need a pastor. I, I need more than one. Like None of us graduate from needing church. All of us need the church. And if you're like, well, I'm not really sure that if I engage in the church and really tell some people who I really am and some of the struggles that I have, I'm not sure that I will be loved. And that's just a lie. And it's a lie especially told to you dudes, right? Now, I get it. I, small groups are hard for me because I don't think men's natural state, like if you found us all out in the wild, we wouldn't be sitting in a circle talking about our feelings and prayer life. Is that fair? All right. But if we never talk about those things, we won't have much of either of those things. It's not unmanly to say, hey, I'm like extremely sad and don't know why. Or I've been trying to connect with my kids for a long time and it seems like no matter what I do, they dislike me. That's not unmanly. In fact, it's cowardly and unmanly to never admit pains in yourself that you never have to fix. It is a way of hiding and being not courageous. And you were designed to be courageous, guys. So I don't know, I never grew up in the Midwest, but if you Midwest dudes are anything like Southern dudes, and here's the word of the Lord to you, stop it. <laughs> Just stop it. Like, I get it, well my dad didn't do that. I know, but do you wanna be like him? Right? What will the guys in the office think? I don't know, maybe don't tell them, right? But talk to some men in this church. You have great elders here. You've got great pastors here. Like, if you've got problems that you're like, are pretty sure that over the next 25 years are gonna dissolve your marriage and destroy your children, maybe, maybe skip the home improvement project this weekend and do a little you improvement project this weekend, right? Who are you to tell me that, Adam? Oh, man, <laughs> you don't have time for that. <laughs> Finally, the mission. The mission is part of how we grow. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus' discipleship of the disciples happened along the journey of the mission, right? Jesus never had a one-to-one -one coffee appointment with all of his disciples throughout the week where it's like, how's your prayer life? What are you getting from the word? That's not how Jesus made disciples. That's how we make disciples, which you, know, you might wanna consider that if you make disciples in a way very different than Jesus, maybe don't, I don't know. <clears throat> no, Jesus was working with these dudes as they were apprenticing the master in the mission. 
And so if you're like, oh, I'm really messed up, I'm really like a depression, I got all these things, and you've got diagnoses thrown at you and all this stuff, and I, I just, listen, I can't really engage my neighbors, I can't really engage in the mission, like I just, need to, I just need to work on me. There's a sliver of truth that sometimes you need to come off the front lines and get some triage, that's true. But none of you never need to move into a rehabilitation community never to get back on the mission. That's not true. All of you, all of you are designed to be healed along the way because your function is part of the mission. And if you live out of your function, you won't heal properly. You just won't. And so weirdly and frustratingly, my healing has come along the journey of like international missions and church planting. Ugh. I don't want to do that. I don't want to heal in front of people that I'm supposed to lead. That's very insecure feeling. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know, because you're proud. So we're going to work on that. And we're going to get some stuff done together. But isn't that just like a dad? Isn't that just like a great heavenly father? My favorite way to hang out with my sons is to build something with them. It is also their favorite way to hang out with me. Like, we'll go and, well, my young guy, he just wants ice cream a lot. But normally, like, when I, like, we built this massive fence around my property and I bought a roofing nailer, which if you've ever operated a roofing nailer, they're awesome. But what I didn't know is that it has an automatic setting for when you know you need to, brrr, I have no idea what that's for. And so, you know, I'm out there and I got my guys and at this point, Wyatt was like six and I'm like, all right, buddy, you know, just hold it and squeeze the trigger. And he goes, brrr, it's like, oh my God. I should probably have tested that first. But we learned about being careful that day and why it has never forgotten. <laughs> and it's a really sweet memory. Why? Because we were doing something together. You'll feel close to your heavenly father as you do stuff with him. The mission is part of how you get healed. Now you might say, well, I don't like that. Okay, well, unfortunately, that doesn't matter. You know, because it is what God has ordained to heal you, why? Because you are not a static thing, you are a dynamic creature with a mission and a purpose and a calling and a destiny and as you in faith step out on that thing, even while you know you are kinda messed up, God will faithfully heal you. The gospel is a relational healing and so as we engage in the mission of the gospel and the message of the gospel, as we become aware that we've got some things that we need to fix and we turn from them and we trust Jesus and we say, Holy Spirit, you gotta help me and you enter into a church of other people that are kind of like that at different levels of messed up than you and you all say, anyway, we're gonna lock arms and do this mission, you will experience healing if you don't quit, if you don't give up. Some of you in this room, you're like, I don't know, I've been in this church for like four or five years now and I've got like moderately hurt enough times that if I, I, I've got enough excuses to leave. In marriage counseling, I think we call that the seven year itch. Right? Most marriages end prior to that seven year but if you make it past the seventh year, you've got like a much higher chance of just staying married for the rest of your life. Why? It's because after seven years, you're like, this person has in small ways broken my trust and hurt me enough that I kinda wanna hold a pillow over their face. And I think half the population would understand if I explained it to them. But I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna engage now, I'm gonna stay. And when you do that, you find, oh my gosh, this lifelong covenant partner, this is amazing. Church can be the same way for you if you will engage it. So, why would you do that? What are the motivations for believing the gospel for relational healing? That's why I read the end. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, 
The place where God lives is now the place that humans live, and he's going to live with them forever, and they're going to be his people, and he will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more sadness, and no more mourning, and no more crying, and no more pain anymore. What motivates you? It, your joy, man. Not your happiness. That's lame. You can get happy if you, like, buy a new boat or something. Like, happiness is easy. Joy? Now that's the good stuff. But joy, joy is like pure water from an aquifer so deep you got to drill for it. And that's what I'm talking about. What would motivate you for saying yes to a process that could be really hard? Some of you, I hope, on the back of my sermon today are going to be like, I got to go talk to a great Christian therapist because I might be ruining my marriage. Okay? That's going to be hard for you. Like you're not going to go once and be like, oh, I'm like fixed. I'm charismatic. I'm a man of faith, but I have never seen that happen. You're going to have to like engage in a process of relational healing, and you're going to have to believe the gospel the whole time. So why, why, Adam, why would I do that? Your joy. Your joy. Jesus has joy for you, like infinite and eternal joy then that you can begin to participate with now. We're about to come to Easter, and so Easter is that great moment that we remember that forever happened in time that eternity broke out into the regular cyclical awfulness of our lives. Because Jesus broke out of the grave, that means the same death cycles that take us out now can be interrupted by faith in that Jesus. That's why the gospel is a relational healing, and when we trust him, we're trusting him that in the end, we get infinite, eternal, and increasing joy forever. That's what motivates the hard work now. The second thing is, like, your, your life is going to tell a story. It just will. We all have these living parables of our lives that tell people who we are and who we trust. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, well, okay, what story do I want my life to tell? I just did a funeral. My, my final grandparent passed away, and I have done all of their funerals. And this one was hard. Because... the story that I was able to tell wasn't the story I hope someone tells about me. Your, your life is going to tell a story, whether you like it or not, and it's going to tell a story that echoes down through the generations. And so out of love for your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids that you may never meet, unless you like work out and eat organic or something, what story do you want them to inherit? which takes us to the third one, the next generation. Not just the next generation of your own natural children, but like you're gonna make disciples and have spiritual generational children. Do you want them to be marked by your pain and your flesh and your refusal to deal with your own issues? Or do you want them to be marked by the fact that they were discipled and mentored and pastored and loved and mothered and fathered by someone who was definitely imperfect, but who was trusting Jesus for that growth? Which, which would you like? Because the gospel is a relational healing and you can experience that relational healing now. Would you throw that picture of my family back up? These lovely people are the people that I've hurt the most in the world. That sucks. And they're the people I love the most in the world. And because I've been willing to engage in some healing, they're getting healed. Isn't that cool? Because the, the bad thing about sin is that it never just affects you, right? Like it, it infects everything. But healing does the same thing, but better. 
that when you actually engage and trust God for healing, your own healing starts to like purify things that you didn't even know needed purification and healing things that you didn't even know were broken. And I can tell you that I am not done by any means, but as I've taken some steps toward trusting Jesus and taken some steps toward my own relational healing, mom and I can see amazing things happening in their lives. And I show that to you not so that you'll go, oh, Adam's awesome at this. Yo, I am not awesome at this. But I hope maybe this will give you some hope that you, though you might not be awesome at this, if you trust Jesus and engage in such a process, the gospel could be relational healing, not just to you, but also to your them. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these men and women. God, I ask that uh, you would help us to turn from sin and trust you. Yes, for salvation, and yes, for heaven, and yes, for forgiveness. But as we experience a healed and beautified relationship with you, I pray that my friends in here would experience a healed and beautified relationship with their spouse, their parents, with their children, with their community, with their family, maybe with the, even within this church. Lord, that we would be faithful and daring to live out trust in Jesus in our relationships. God, would you help and bless them in order that they may do that. And Lord, for those of my friends who are in here and they don't yet know Jesus, I'm asking that the good news, that Jesus loves them this much to have a great relationship with them, would sink deeply today and that they would turn from sin and trust the Savior for that healed relationship. In Jesus' name, amen.